Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Latin American democracy is in trouble. From the Rio Grande all the way to the Drake Passage, there has been an accelerating erosion of both the forms and the realities of representative democracy. Is the witch's brew of the pandemic, underperforming economies, weak rule of law, and structural inequality more than democracy can bear? Will things get worse before they get better? My guests today are deeply knowledgeable about their own countries, but also about the region. Eduardo Amadeo, Argentine economist and politician, Sergio Guzman, Colombian political risk analyst and commentator, Patricio Navia, Chilean political scientist and academic. Welcome. Each of your countries is in the midst of very complicated, very different circumstances with deep divisions among political forces as well as ordinary citizens. Can democracy survive? Patricio. Okay, well, democracy evolves, right? And sometimes democracy is better, sometimes democracy is of lower quality. But I don't think democracy is under threat, or at least elections are not under threat. But these countries do have challenges, and those challenges have to do with whether democracy is going to be sufficiently inclusive and whether democracy will, in fact, produce more equality in a context of economic growth. The worst case scenario, and this is something that we have seen in Latin America before, is that in attempting to produce more equality, countries end up being equally poor. And in many cases, they end up being poorer and still unequal. So they do have challenges ahead. It's not guaranteed that uh, they will succeed in facing those challenges because one of the biggest challenges the countries have, even more than to produce equality, is to produce sustained growth. And that seems to be a really big challenge that no Latin American country at the present time is able to successfully meet. But are people beyond the elite invested in the process of rewriting the rules? Sergio? Absolutely. And I think the the demand or the cry in the streets is not for less democracy, but for more democracy, for more participation, for them to be more involved in the government's decisions, for the government to be more transparent and to consult with people more, for the government to increase its presence in the most rural areas of the country that it didn't come to uh, only in the form of the military or the police. So right now, democracy, which used to come in the form of military presence, is being requested and demanded in the form of accountability, institutional presence, and why not uh, responsibility by members of Congress. And so we have these institutions that were meant to uphold democratic values that are falling short because expectations are now increasing. In effect, you are talking about the social contract between government and citizens. Eduardo, the social contract in Argentina has been broken so many times, 
that I wonder if it's possible to put it back together yet again. Definitely. Uh, I, I think that the democracy, it's not at risk. Uh, but, I mean, probably violence could be around the corner. I mean, it does not mean that because there's going to be violence, democracy will die. But in my country, the number of uncertainties that we have is too big. We do not know what's going to happen. I mean, poverty at record levels, unemployment, zero financing for the state, awful administration of the pandemic, very low levels of, of vaccination, permanent risk of currency run, etc. All this type of madness that have defined Argentina for the last, I don't know how many decades. So just to answer your question, I think that democracy is not at risk, but definitely what's the way out to this situation? I cannot tell. I cannot tell. For the time being, Peronistas are keeping the, the country peaceful in a way because the, they're spending billions in food and support for the, for the poorest people. But this may change uh, from one minute into another as it happened before because, for example, of uh, inflation. If we have a new wave of inflation, we already have inflation, but I would say hyperinflation. No one knows what would happen. So just to finish this first intervention, the question is, we do not know what sort of democracy we are going to have. We are going to have the democratic regime or just elections. We do not know. The, the risk are, is too high. And there is always a chicken-egg problem when it comes to sequencing politics and economics. Bad politics often drives bad economics, but when economics are good, no one wants to fiddle around with the system. So you wait until the economy turns bad again, produces more social tension, destroys the social contract, and then you get the message that we're talking about. Is there any way to break that cycle, Sergio? Yeah, I think I think democracy is much more than than elections. Um, and elections are going to happen next year in, in 2022. And a big reason why a lot of people are sort of holding their cards very close to their chest, uh, particularly companies, is because they don't know what the 2022 election holds. But they're also looking at the risks of elections in countries like Chile and the risks of elections in countries like Peru that have yielded results that are anything but satisfactory, or at least there's expectations of great upheavals. So democracy is elections, of course, but I think in Colombia, democracy is also so many other things. I don't know about Chile, Patricio, but the polls in a lot of places pretty consistently show that younger people are less enthusiastic about democracy, which they see as a process that is not terribly relevant to their lives. And they're much more worried about outcomes, whereas older people are embedded in the values, word Sergio used, they're embedded in the process and somehow think the outcomes will eventually come. Do you see the same in Chile? Well, I, I think Chile has a strong institutional system, but ironically, um, we are now putting that on the line um, precisely because we are rewriting the constitution, which might end up weakening the institutional system. 
So uh, people did go out to the streets. They wanted more equality. They wanted more social services, more social rights. And the response the political class gave them was, okay, so we'll rewrite the rules of the game rather than increase social expenditure, rather than increase social rights. Um, the political elite says, okay, we might decide to rewrite the whole constitution. So um, Chile does or did have um, stronger institutions and not altogether clear that after the process, we will continue to have those uh, stronger institutions. People wanted to be part of the benefits of economic growth and uh, the Chilean political elite decided that they were going to rewrite the rules that have produced that economic growth and that might end up leaving everyone worse off. I mean, democracies are always about elites. You are not going to have all the people writing the new constitutions, even if some people or some of the representatives that will write the constitution come from the people, um, there will always be an elite writing the constitution. The main reason why people wanted a new constitution, and that was just confirmed this week when new polls came out, is that because people want better pensions, because they want more health care. So they are concerned about policy issues, not about constitutional design. And I think that's where the problem is in the Chilean response to the protest. People wanted better social policy. And the political elite said, no, we're going to write the whole thing again. And I don't think that's the smartest response to the social upheaval in Chile. Thomas Jefferson allegedly said, you get the government you elect, which gets bastardized into, you get the leaders you deserve. And that, again, is critical to democracy. We've used words like accountability. We've used words like uh, delivering social contract. Are we getting the leaders we deserve? And if so, how do we deserve better? Pat Patricio. Well, yes. In fact, in the elections, um, to elect the members of the Constitutional Assembly, only 43% of people, of eligible voters, turned out to vote. So less than half of voters actually bother to go out and elect the members of this assembly that will rewrite the rules. But to a large extent, that is the result of inequality, right? People are concerned about their well-being. They want better pensions. And when you tell them, we are going to write a new constitution that potentially will give you better pensions 20 years from now, people say, no, I want better pensions now. I need better pensions today. So to a large extent, democracy is a pleasure that only the wealthy can afford to have. Um, for the poor, satisfying the immediate needs might be way more important than democracy. And if those needs are satisfied by an authoritarian leader who might be elected democratically, but who comes in to solve problems a la Duterte, or think of Bukele, in El Salvador, then people are going to be happy with that uh, leader. So democracy is a luxury that the poor often cannot afford. And the irony is that it was only a moment ago that The Economist and the World Economic Forum and everybody else was talking about the emerging middle class in Latin America, South America, thinking of Brazil, of Chile, of Colombia. We'll get to the pandemic in a second. Yes, Sergio. I don't think so. 
Uh, I think when 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 boom times are happening, in particular commodity booms, uh, there's very little impetus for change because the state spends more, the state begins to invest more in different contracts, in different issues. Uh, but it's when this belt tightening happens that people's satis- dissatisfaction with the system surfaces. Um, and in Colombia, the pandemic has made all the social tensions that we had prior worse. Uh, unemployment is worse. Uh, people not working and not studying has increased significantly. Inequality has grown quite significantly as well. But also there's an element, I think, in the vaccination because vaccines touch people very personally how the state is able to affect their livelihoods or at least their ability to survive. And what we've seen in many places in Latin America is the state's complete inability to keep its populations alive. And the rich have already went to New York, already went to Miami, already went to Texas for their vaccinations. And the poor are stuck with a social contract uh, that, that they have no form of changing. So I think that that surfaces a lot of issues. Eduardo. I want, I want to, to change something that I said before, after hearing what happened in Chile. Uh, I said that democracy is not at risk. The question is, what sort of democracy? Because I would not rule out the fact that we could have a process like the Chilean, considering also that our institutional, uh, our institutions are far are weaker than the Chileans. And that goes to your question, Alan. The social contract in Argentina has to be rewritten. And some of the basic values that let a society work should be rediscussed. For example, populism in Argentina has always prioritized present to the future. And the the result of that is inflation. Fiscal expenditure means that you prefer inflation to stability. So the the chances that Argentina falls in a process with terrible uncertainty in terms of violence, uh, economy, poverty, etc., are very high. So what's going to be the social contract after that? I could not tell. I could not tell. Probably a formal democracy shall survive. But the, the, final, uh, the final scene is open. Patricia? Let me, let, let, me, let me give it a try. I mean, in the 1960s, when uh, the Cuban Revolution took place, the response the U.S. gave was, in order to prevent new revolutions, we need to create a stronger middle class in Latin America. And the U.S. response was Alliance for Progress. Let's help the regimes bring about more economic growth so that more people join the middle class. And Karl Marx had this great intuition, right? The middle class will abandon the proletariat's drive for a revolution because while the proletariat has nothing to lose but their chains, the middle class does have things to lose. So if 
you can create a strong enough middle class, that middle class will be the basis on which you can build democracy. But if there are just way too many people with nothing to lose, then you are not going to have strong support for democratic systems in Latin America. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. Alan, can I make a comment? Today I received a, a figure that really shocked me. The number of students of the secondary school that left the school, abandoned school, last year in the capital city in Buenos Aires, which is quite different from the rest of the country, is larger than all the 10 years before. O sea, in just one year, more students left the school than the 10 previous years. Than, so the shock for those kids, uh, those students, it's terrible, and for their families. So recovering that, recovering inclusion, education, etc., is going to be a very, very difficult process, definitely. Sergio. In, in Colombia, it's not like we don't have qualified bureaucrats. I would argue we have some of the most qualified bureaucrats, some of the smartest, most well-studied people. But many of them don't want to get involved in politics because there's the sense Colombia has stellar bureaucrats. Colombia has smart academics, people of world class in the judicial sector, in the economic sector, in the business sector even. But you can't get them together to act in the benefit of the political establishment because it feels like at least the political class has been captured by corrupt individuals or by corrupt organizations who do not have the best interest of the state in mind. So I think what we have, in addition to everything, is, is a leadership crisis of the highest kind. And that's partly because of how the system is designed to punish corruption and to look for every little misstep that a politician may make, and disincentivizes risk-taking. But at the same time, it feels like people who could provide a lot of material support to democracy prefer to sit on the sidelines. Eduardo, that turns into a question for you, since you are the only one of us who has repeatedly put yourself in front of voters and mostly won, sometimes didn't win. So how do we get better politicians? Uh, <laughs> I, when when Patricia was talking, I was thinking on the um, on our own experience in in Argentina. The last government by by Mauricio Macri was a real effort to change the quality of politics by bringing into politics people coming from the private sector, uh, academics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, after many many years of uh, of uh, politicians of poor quality, to say the least. And unfortunately, I was part of that government at the House, at, at the Congress. Uh, we failed for a number of reasons, but 
uh, we fail. So it's going to be hard because in my country, there are enormous incentives to be non-efficient, to say the least, or corrupt. The peronismo uh, keeps under control, I would say, 30% of the, of the population, majority in the Senate, and almost majority uh, at the House. So what you have to do is to have, get, I mean, regain power in order to apply the, the, the laws and also to try from the government to uh, recover the will of those who are interested in the state is not going to be easy unless we can end with corruption in Argentina. It's going to be hard to have good leaders because a number of politicians are attracted by the, by the possibility of getting rich very fast. Some time ago, I was at a dinner in Mexico City with a group of elite businessmen, business leaders of the time in Mexico and their wives. And we were talking about politics and everyone was complaining. And I interrupted and said, what would you do if your son or daughter came home tonight and said they decided to become a politician? Everyone at that table was shocked and outraged. They'd send them to the United States. They'd send them to London. They'd get out. Of, they, they would not let this happen. And that was a few decades ago. I suspect the same is still true in too many places, that politics is not seen as a reputable profession, uh, but rather something else. Patricio, you, you spent a lot of time with kids. How do we get them to become politicians? Good politicians, not bad politicians. Well, I think incentives are way more important than personalities, right? So if you put the right incentives in place, then even bad politicians will behave um, properly. And, and people understand that, right? So um, in sports, when you put the right incentives in place, they play sports and not fight with each other. And, and the same is true for the political world. You have to have the right incentives in place. Now, um, one of those incentives has to be something that is not very popular. You have to pay politicians well. If you do not pay politicians well, they will find other sources of income, and that's precisely what we don't want them to do. Um, you also have to allow for their re-election. They have to be allowed to develop political careers. And in many places, we're moving away from that, limiting the re-election of politicians because people want new faces. But politicians should be seen as doctors. You, do, you don't want somebody to be a doctor for four years and then go do something else, right? You want somebody to be a good doctor for many, many years. Um, and in fact, you should think of politicians as, doc as doctors and political parties as hospitals. You don't want to deal with them all the time, but you certainly want them to be the best. And I think we're moving in the opposite direction by getting this idea that anybody can be a politician. And it's just a matter of getting somebody from the outside and letting that person leave the country. We are getting ourselves into a really, really bad situation. I mean, you wouldn't get any passenger to fly the plane. You want somebody who's trained to fly the plane. But it seems that people want for politicians something very different than they, what they want for other 
professions. For other professions, we want experts, people with good training, who are fully dedicated and who make a lot of money in their profession. But for politicians, for some reason, we think anybody can do a good job. And that's just not the case. I would like to think that one of the contributions the United States has made to this debate is by electing and then not re-electing Donald Trump, demonstrating first that anybody could be president, and second, that it's a bad idea that anybody becomes president. No, look. Sergio, last thoughts. Look, I, I think a lot of the people, a lot of the young people particularly, feel frustrated with the system, feel frustrated with the system that the previous generation left them. Uh, they feel frustrated with the pension system that they're not going to be entitled to have, probably. They feel, they feel upset that there's corruption, that there's infrastructure deficiencies, that there's education deficiencies, and they need positive routes to channel that energy in, in terms of democracy. I think at least there's been great forces of equalization in terms of online communications and how young people have made sure to participate actively in those. In countries like Peru, it was the youth who largely led the anti-Merino protests. And I think it would behoove politicians, not just to be good politicians, but to actually represent their constituencies, and particularly their younger constituents and their hopes for the future. Eduardo, what would you, what would be on your things that could be done? Uh, let me fully agree with what Patricio said before about uh, training uh, future politicians. That's something that the, the parties, democratic parties, political parties, they should devote money and time to that. It can be done. It can be done. It will take time to have those new politicians prepared, but it's something that has to be done at the level of the, of the political parties. Many other things have to be done in order to, to improve the situation of democracy. But at this time, most of our energies have, have to be put in repairing the, the effects, the impact of the COVID, uh, which is definitely a challenge for democracy. Let me pick up on that and ask Patricio the last question. The IMF has published a working paper which looked at a number of pandemics in the past, going back centuries. And what a surprise, social and political unrest is exploding all over the place, and this pandemic hasn't even bothered to end yet. So, Patrice, uh, are we fated just to have to cope with this mess, that there's positive ways out of it, knowing that it's coming at us? This is looking at a wave, and it's about to crash upon us. Well, pandemics exacerbate inequality, because some people die, other people don't. Some people get a vaccine, other people do not. Um, so, and, and then the economic crisis affects some people way more than others. So we're going to see higher levels of inequality in a region that was already very unequal. Um, so pandemics are going to worsen the situation, but they also provide a great opportunity uh, for both those interested in promoting democracy and those interested in promoting inequality equality. So the U.S., for example, can be way more proactive in helping Latin American countries access the vaccine so that the governments can show people that everyone has a good chance at getting vaccinated and that the country will overcome the pandemic. 
The U.S. has a great tool, and it should use it way more in promoting democracy and good governance in Latin America. So there are some opportunities, but I'm a bit concerned that the U.S. is not jumping at the opportunity of using vaccine diplomacy to promote accountable governments and well-functioning democracies in the region. I think we need to end on that note because I can't imagine the defense for the lack of vaccine diplomacy because you are clearly right. There is an enormous opportunity. And it's not just because it's in the interests of your countries. It is obviously wildly in the interest of the United States that the kinds of social and political and economic tension that we've been talking about uh, in this podcast uh, are resolved, that we move into a better place. Thank you very much, Eduardo, Patricio, Sergio. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>